by making two things absolutely clear. This is the, the total foundation of my little talk here. One, federal elementary and secondary education intervention is a failure, and I'll give you some basic statistics for that, and it is unconstitutional. So the academic failure piece. If you look at the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which is sort of our national test where we try and gauge how American students are doing, if you look at the scores for 17-year-olds, and these are kind of you know, high school seniors, which you might call the final products of our school system, if you look at their scores over the last roughly 40 years, so basically the entire time that the federal government has been involved in elementary and secondary education, if you look at those scores, they are almost completely flat, no improvement whatsoever. This despite a roughly 300% real increase, inflation-adjusted increase, in federal per-pupil spending. I don't think you can get a more compelling set of data than that to show that federal education policy has failed. But if you need to corroborate that, you can also look at our standing in international exams like the TIMS tests or the PISA tests, and you can see there we have stagnated or gotten worse. Now, there is a completely legitimate argument to say that, well, test scores don't really capture everything that we want out of education. I think that that's accurate. However, the National Assessment of Educational Progress is a federal test. This is what the federal government uses as its gauge of success. So by the federal government's own test, federal policy has failed. And next we have the Constitution. The federal government has specific enumerated powers, Article I, Section 8, and nowhere among them will you find anything about education or schooling. That means the federal government has no authority to govern education, pure and simple. There are two ways, though, constitutionally, that the federal government can be involved. Under the 14th Amendment, the federal government has a responsibility to ensure that state and local governments do not discriminate in their provision of education. And the federal government has jurisdiction over the District of Columbia. So the federal government absolutely has constitutional authority to say how D.C. runs its schools and absolutely has constitutional authority to have the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program. So there's a little irony in that the one thing you hear the most opposition based on local control to was, well, local control says we shouldn't have a federal D.C. scholarship or voucher program. Well, that's the one area the federal government can be involved in. Otherwise, what the federal government is doing is unconstitutional. Now, the big news in education, at least at the federal level, the last couple of weeks has been that Secretary Duncan has said that if Congress doesn't reauthorize the No Child Left Behind Act by August 1st, essentially, the administration will do it for Congress. What Secretary Duncan has said is that he will begin to issue waivers to states to get out of lots of requirements of No Child Left Behind. And not just that, but most importantly would say that would be conditioned on states agreeing to do a whole bunch of things that the administration wants it to do. And that can be, for instance, adopting national curricular standards. This was done through the Race to the Top program. Or it could be to say that all states have to have a, a, a longitudinal data system. This was pushed through Race to the Top. In other words, we can actually look at the Race to the Top program, which is $4.35 billion in the stimulus that the, that the Secretary and the Obama administration used to twist state arms to doing their bidding, and see that now uh, applied to the No Child Left Behind Act without a single action by Congress to allow it. 
So a lot of people are concerned about the Secretary's threat to use these wafers, but I would submit to you that this has come too late. If you haven't been saying that everything the federal government is doing in education is unconstitutional, as it almost all of it clearly is, then it's too late to start saying, well, now we should obey the Constitution. Of course, we would want to follow the proper procedures of, the, of laws, originate with the legislature, but we have to go more basic than that and say everything the federal government is doing, unless it's part of the 14th Amendment or in D.C., is unconstitutional. And when we gave up doing that, we sort of ceded to the federal government and the branches of the federal government the ability to do whatever they want because the rule of law has been eroded. And we absolutely need to keep that at the front of our minds. And now, many people will say, well, okay, I could accept this, this unconstitutionality, if I thought the federal government could do good in education. But the fact of the matter is that federal government cannot do good in education because all the incentives, the incentive structure that goes into federal policy making is almost all against making good policy. And it all comes down to concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. The people who benefit most from the policy are going to be the most involved in the politics. And the people who, who get the most out of the education system it's not the children, it's not the parents, it's the people employed by the system. That's their livelihood. So we're talking about teachers' unions, administrators' associations, other groups. And these are rational people. They're not better or worse than the rest of us. And they tend to want what I want and what most people want, which is they'd like to get paid as much as possible and not have someone tell them whether they're doing a good job. <laughs> and and it's totally rational. I mean, I'd love it if, if Cato would pay me, you know, a salary that has no top, and nobody said whether or not I was actually earning it. Um, and so politicians are also self-interested. And what they want to do generally is to get votes and win re-elections and have people run nice advertisements about them. And so generally that means the people they will respond to are those people employed by the system, those people who are most motivated, not the parents and children. So thanks to that, we will almost never see unless we have an aberration for a short period of time, federal education policy making sense. And if you look at the last 40 years, you can see just irrefutable evidence that that is the case. Now, many people will say, well, but states and local districts don't do any better. They are subject to concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. And that's, that's true. Now, there are a few things that make it better if you keep control of education at the state or district level. States do, to an extent, have to compete with one another. Districts do, to an extent, have to compete with one another. And so there is some competition to provide better services, including education. And then we have sort of a, a safety feature. You've probably heard the term that the states are laboratories of democracy. The real safety here is that if you leave control over education with the states, one state can try something, which might be promising but also has risk. And if that doesn't pay off, if it turns out to be very damaging, the damage is isolated to that state. The whole country doesn't go down when they try something that doesn't work out. And so it's essential that we maintain these laboratories of democracy. Um, but again, it's, it's true. States and local districts are subject to concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. Most states have done a pretty poor job of running education, and many, many districts have done a poor job of running education. That's why the ultimate solution is educational freedom. 
give control of funding to parents so that they can vote immediately with their feet when they're not happy with what a school is providing. So if you think about how you try and affect change and get what you want politically, it's often a multi-year, multi-decade process of, well, we'll build grassroots support so that we can get on the radar of policymakers, and then they can try and get support of other policymakers, so eventually we can get a law passed that will begin to move things the way we want, and then if we can get that law passed, we'll have to monitor the regulations and how people are complying with it for many more years, and you can see why teachers unions, administrators associations have a huge advantage there. They can employ people full-time to watch all this, whereas parents and citizens have lives they have to, to run and couldn't possibly monitor all this. So you have to give them the ability to, to vote with their feet, immediate accountability, not interminable political change. And you need to give educators freedom. One of the arguments against No Child Left Behind comes from educators and they say they're stifled by rules and regulations and they can't try new things or specialize. And that is true. And you need to give them the ability to do that so that you have flexibility, competition, innovation, and what holds that in check is that you let parents be customers. Uh, because of this, because I think ultimately the change has to fundamentally change the system, where the parents have the power, there's lots of freedom, and you have competition like in a free market. This is why I think that the A-plus Act and Lindsay's proposal, that she's going to talk about in much more detail than I am, are much better than the status quo, and, and she'll tell you why. But I think that there's another act that, that's actually better, that's been proposed, and I, I understand will be reintroduced, which is something called the LEARN Act from Congressman Garrett in, from New Jersey. And basically what this would do is get the hook that the federal government has on states away from it. And that hook is, you only have to comply with No Child Left Behind if you take federal money, and so people will tell you. Well, No Child Left Behind is totally voluntary. It's just that states want the money. But of course what's forgotten is that money is taken involuntarily from taxpayers, people who live in states and districts. And so to break that connection and bypass those states and districts which are subject to concentrated benefits and diffuse costs, what this act would do would say a state would declare we'll run our own education system and basically the citizens of that state would get a tax break as a result proportionate to what they would have spent on federal education policy. So you break that spending connection and you no longer pretend that it's the states or districts that are sending the money, but you recognize it's taxpayers that are doing that. And that is the key. Of course, that is just, I think, moving us very far in the right direction, but ultimately, remembering what the Constitution says, the only acceptable solution in the end is for the federal government simply to get out of education, because it doesn't have the constitutional authority to be involved, and if you look at what we've gotten from 40 years of federal intervention, you can tell they don't have the wherewithal to actually improve anything anyway. And with that, I will turn things over to Lindsay. Great. Well, thanks so much, Neil, and thanks to Cato for having me, and thanks to everyone for being here today. Um, Neil kind of stole my opening uh, line, which was, without question, the federal role in education has failed. No, very few people would dispute that today. And they haven't really disputed it since about 1983. Back in 1983, the now infamous, uh, infamous Nation at Risk report was released, and that was the report where they said, if an unfriendly foreign power had attempted to impose on America 
the mediocre educational performance that exists today, we might well have viewed it as an act of war. And those are strong words, but I think without question, the same statements could be made today for all of the reasons that Neil outlined. And all of this has happened despite the fact that the federal role in education has been expanding significantly since the mid-60s. We started off in 1965. This is where we really saw the opening salvo of federal involvement in education. Back in 1965, this was when we saw the original Elementary and Secondary Education Act passed into law. This was uh, Johnson's ESEA, and despite that, uh, since that time, we have seen eight reauthorizations now of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. If we reauthorize No Child Left Behind this year, this will be the ninth reauthorization of ESEA. And the idea at the time behind ESEA was to provide compensatory education, so spending federal dollars through federal programs in an effort to improve uh, the performance of low-income children. And when Johnson signed ESEA into law back in 65, he said, no law I have signed or ever will sign means more to the future of America. And what have we gotten since 1965? Not too much. So that's 1965. 1979 rolls along and uh, as Carter's in office creates the Federal Department of Education, the first agency level uh, cabinet agency overseeing education. And despite President Reagan's staunch efforts to abolish the department, or what he called Carter's bureaucratic boondoggle, just a year later when he came into office, as you're well aware, the Department of Education is still alive and well today. There are about 4,200 employees that sit over at the Department of Ed. Uh, we calculated the average salary at the Department of Ed to be about $103,000. So uh, certainly some, some waste there and some room for some <coughs> fiscal austerity at the Department of Ed. So that was 1980, we saw Ed created. And then in the 1990s, we saw the federal government get involved with systemic Ed reform. So when we started off in 65 uh, with Johnson with this idea of compensatory Ed, by the 1990s, the federal role had morphed into systemic Ed reform, which essentially meant, from Washington's perspective, that no, child, uh, no uh, aspect of education policy was off limits any longer. And in 2001, to come up to speed to today, we saw No Child Left Behind uh, come into law. And one of the most problematic aspects of No Child Left Behind and of these many reauthorizations of ESEA has been a growth in state bureaucracy. And the biggest problem out of that growth of state bureaucracy has been that states are no longer responding to parents and taxpayers. They're instead responding to the demands of Washington. They're responding to these trillions of dollars that have been spent uh, on education by the federal government since the 1960s. And just to outline some of the waste that we're seeing from, um, as a result of federal involvement and this growth in state bureaucracy, in 1994, GAO reported that the burden on states to comply with federal regulations caused states to hire 13,400 employees just for states to comply with paperwork associated with federal involvement. By 1994, in 1994, that was uh, about 7% of the federal government or of education funding was provided by the federal government. Despite the fact that it was just 7%, 41% of the paperwork that states have to fill out is a result of federal involvement. By 2006, No Child Left Behind had increased states' annual paperwork burden by 7 million hours at a cost of $141 million per year. Those are real people sitting in state and local education agencies filling out paperwork to comply with federal regulations. And that burden continues to grow. That was 2006. Recently, in a um, House Education and Workforce Committee hearing, Chairman Klein noted that 
States and school districts work 7.8 million hours each year collecting and disseminating information required under Title I of federal education law. These hours cost more than $235 million. The burden is tremendous, and it is just one of the many federal laws weighing down our schools. That's just Title I of No Child Left Behind. That's one part of it. And to put it in perspective, this has a real cost on schools and on classrooms and teachers and students. One Northern Virginia school district reported in a hearing that the cost of setting aside a single day to train their roughly 14,000 teachers in the division on NCLB's complex requirements is the equivalent of hiring 72 additional teachers just to comply with No Child Left Behind. So with all of the new regulations and paperwork burden, states have had to increase their administrative overhead. Since the 1950s, we have seen a significant growth in this administrative overhead. In the 1960s, schools had about 2.36 non-teaching staff positions for every one teacher, and today the ratio is closer to one to one. So if you're in a local school, for every teacher that you see walking around or in a classroom, they have an administrative counterpart of personnel working in the classroom as well, or working in the school. And over the years, the approximate percentage of teachers as a proportion of school staff has declined from about 70% to about 51%. So all of this indicates that states are having a tremendous time, states and local education agencies, filling out the paperwork just to comply with these federal regulations. And another part of the problem when we see this growth in the federal role in education is that, as Neil has pointed out, government is an inefficient provider of education resources. Uh, and this is, I think, perhaps the most, uh, the most notable incidence of this is in the increases in spending and the lack of corresponding academic achievement growth. Uh, despite the fact that we have seen, uh, as Andrew Colson will point out over at Cato, more than $2 trillion in federal money spent uh, since the mid-60s, despite the fact that we have seen per-pupil education expenditures triple, reading achievement has remained flat since the 1970s, math achievement has increased only nominally, we still have achievement gaps, uh, international students beat us uh, on most tests, American students rank in the middle of the pack, and graduation rates are the same today that they were in the 1970s. If any other business operated the way the federal government operates, they would have gone out of business a long time ago. Overhead costs have just expanded tremendously, and yet we're seeing nothing um, in, in terms of academic achievement improvements as a result. And this inefficiency uh, is notable when you look at the amount of money that makes it to the classroom uh, that the federal government spends. Only about 65 cents on every dollar makes it to the classroom. That's every federal dollar uh, that is taken from a state, sent to Washington, filtered through the Department of Ed, and sent back to states and local education agencies. It's a pretty efficient way of doing things, and that's why we only get 65 cents on every dollar making it to the classroom. Which means, of course, that billions and billions of dollars have been wasted over the years, either unaccounted for altogether or lost to bureaucratic overhead or inefficiency. And this, this is why I think it's one of the reasons, the bottom line really, as to why this top-down, heavy-handed Washington approach will not work. Yet the Obama administration wants to see No Child Left Behind reauthorized this year. Uh, we have heard them say it time and again. Uh, we've heard them say that they want to see it reauthorized before the start of this school year. It's a pretty lofty timeline. I don't think we'll see that ultimately. It certainly appears like talks are breaking down on that front. But 
like so many administrations before them, the Obama administration thinks that this time they will get it right, despite the fact that for nearly half a century, no administration has been able to get it right. The federal role in education has failed year after year. That this reauthorization, this ninth reauthorization of No Child Left Behind, somehow will get it right this time. And today, the Department of Education operates well over 100 programs, well over. It's probably closer to 130 programs that the department operates. It's hard to get a handle on it, quite frankly. There are so many uh, niche programs. And the Department of Education, federal taxpayers, will pay about $25 billion on 60 competitive grant programs and 20 formula grant programs under No Child Left Behind alone. So that's just under No Child Left Behind. There are all of these competitive and formula grant programs. If filtering is filtering these, uh, these $25 billion, is filtering all of this money through these many programs, through more than 100 programs operated by the department, is this the best way we could be spending taxpayer dollars on education? Do we really think this will improve education? And as we've noted, history has shown that it hasn't and it probably won't. So we need a drastically different approach. Instead of coming back to the table and trying again to reauthorize No Child Left Behind a ninth time in the hopes that this time we'll get it right, let's try something different. Neil mentioned A+. Plus. A+, plus, um, is really, it really starts to answer the question of accountability. And that's what the debate over reauthorizing No Child Left Behind seems to hinge on, is this question of accountability. And what's so important is asking the question, accountability for what to whom? And I think when we start to think about No Child Left Behind in those terms, uh, we start to see that a reduced federal role is, is certainly the right approach. And A-plus starts to get us there. A-plus would allow states to opt out of the many, many federal programs under No Child Left Behind. And it would do it in a way that better directs resources so that parents and local taxpayers are the ones to whom dollars are accountable and decision making is accountable. Um, so you are allowed to opt out of No Child Left Behind under A+. This would effectively allow states to exercise their 10th Amendment right and opt out of these many federal programs. And it would allow states to dictate how their education dollars are spent. States could enter in under A+, into a five-year agreement with the Secretary of Education, and if a state can show from year one to year five that they've been able to move the needle on educational achievement, that they've been able to make improvements, they would continue to be allowed to have this flexibility and enjoy that flexibility with how they target education resources. Now, while A-plus would allow states to opt out of No Child Left Behind, for those states that still want to remain under No Child Left Behind, we really need to start thinking about cleaning up the underlying law. So A-plus allows you to opt out, but No Child Left Behind still remains as law. So how do we do that? Um, I mentioned earlier that the Department of Ed operates well over 100 programs. There are 60 competitive grant programs under No Child Left Behind, 20 formula grant programs. We need to start streamlining those programs, eliminating programs, consolidating programs at the same time as we're um, looking toward approaches like A plus to allow states to opt out. The many programs that are operated by the department really strain school level management and states and school districts have to spend tremendous amounts of time uh, complying with all of these federal programs, showing compliance, monitoring federal program notices, and complying with all of these requirements that are handed down. So there are about 70 competitive grant programs. Under our proposal, this is where it gets kind of into the, the nitty gritty, 
I think most of these 70 competitive grant programs could be eliminated outright, just done away with. Uh, there are a couple of exceptions to this. Neil mentioned the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program. It is uh, completely appropriate for the federal government to be involved in the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program. Um, two other examples of programs that um, are rightfully, should be under the domain of the federal government. Indian Education, there are some contractual agreements there, and the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which Neil also mentioned. Apart from that, I think you could eliminate most of these competitive grant programs. There are about 70. Even though there are about 70 competitive grant programs, that only, only accounts for about $2 billion. So we're taking $2 billion of federal education money and filtering it through these 70 programs that states have to apply for monitor program notices, uh, spend a lot of time and effort trying to, to obtain the, the resources under these programs. Is this the best way we could be spending that $2 billion? Probably not. So let's eliminate them outright. The, um, there's a bill that's been introduced by Representative Hunter that is a really great start um, that starts to eliminate some of these programs and uh, starts to reduce the federal footprint. Now, at the same time, the bulk of the money uh, are under federal grant programs. The federal grant programs such as Title I, where we see all of the um, many, many dollars, $15 billion about spent on low-income school districts are all under Title I of No Child Left Behind. About 11 out of 18 formula grant programs have formulas that are similar to Title I. Um, they're basically structured the same way. So you could collapse a lot of uh, the formula grant programs and basically subsume them under Title I and really start to streamline the formula grant process. Once it's streamlined, you could start to allow states to make that money portable. So you could allow states to take their Title I resources and have that money follow a child to any school of their choice, public, private, you name it. Otherwise, uh, follow, have the money follow the child to the school of their choice. So the general approach, I know it's complicated, but the general approach is basically A plus, allow states to opt out of No Child Left Behind, allow them to get out from under this heavy-handed bureaucratic federal role in education, and at the same time, let's clean up the Department of Ed a little bit. Uh, let's clean up No Child Left Behind. Let's eliminate these many competitive grant programs and start to consolidate some of these formula grant programs and then make that money portable or at least allow states to make it portable and follow a child to the school of their choice. And that'll really start to, to clean up things. And we often get the question, why not just eliminate the Department of Ed altogether, uh, which is a great question and uh, a worthwhile goal. But if we don't start to tackle some of these federal education programs, we'll never get to a reduced federal footprint. Uh, we'll see a lot of these programs potentially go into other departments. So the first step of what could be a two-step dance, if you will, has to be eliminating and consolidating a lot of these programs. And just to quickly uh, note that we know states have the capacity to do this. We know, as we've said over and over, the federal government has been wholly unable to increase academic achievement. But we can look to states like Florida that have done such a fantastic job at increasing academic achievement. We know this can be done when states are allowed to be the laboratories of reform that they're supposed to be. Um, we can, if anyone has questions on Florida, we can certainly talk about that. But I just want to end with a quote that uh, I heard Senator DeMent say the other day, which I think was very poignant. He said, no longer can we think in terms of what government must do, but instead of in terms of what government must let go of. Which I think is a really good way to start thinking about uh, how we frame the discussion of education moving forward. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Great. And of course, Neil and Lindsay both have all of their writings on the Heritage Foundation website and the Cato website.